The Avengers. That's what we call ourselves. Sort of like a team. Earth's mightiest heroes type thing. Avengers, time to work for a living. That's my secret. I'm always angry. I am on the side of life. You get hurt, hurt him back. You get killed, walk it off. I'm here to talk to you about the Avenger Initiative. I'm your host, Andrew, and I'm here to talk to you about the Avengers. Welcome to episode 15 of Some Assembly Required, your weekly adventure into the annals of Earth's mightiest heroes, the Avengers. This week, we're going to be taking a look at Avengers number 13, The Castle of Count Nefaria. This week's issue is written by Stan Lee, pencils by Don Heck, inks by Dick Ayers, and letters by Art Simic. And it comes to us in February of 1965. Starting off the issue here, we've got a really nice cover. We've got all of the Avengers really nicely drawn. We've got Count Nefaria doing some kind of weird, like, piano organ thing, which is kind of cool, kind of weird. But generally speaking, the art's really nice. My only, I guess, complaint would have to be that the cover's kind of wordy. There's a lot of different bubbles and exclamations all over this cover, and I personally think that's a little unnecessary. So when we compare this issue to the last few issues, it's similar and it's a little bit different in that this first page here, again, functions kind of like an interior cover, but at least in this case, that interior cover fits the story. This is the first time we're starting a story in media res, which means that it picks up in the middle of the story. And that's exactly what this cover does. And then immediately going to the next page, we get the beginning of the story and we'll have to see how the interior cover relates to the story a little later on. So the actual story starts off fairly simply with the Avengers foiling a fur coat robbery. And this robbery is being carried out by, I'm going to go ahead and pronounce this the Magia. Effectively, this is the Marvel Universe version of the Mafia. It is an organized crime syndicate. The difference here being that the Magia frequently hire supervillains to work for and to run the organization. But you guys get the picture. Now, I kind of like the fact that the Avengers are going after gangsters and kind of a street-level type of thug. As far as Marvel is concerned, it's a little bit of a Spider-Man feel, which is kind of cool. But in the larger comic book history scope of things, this really kind of goes back to some of the origins of superhero comics, when Batman and Superman would fight against organized crime and slumlords and things like that. So this is just kind of a nice throwback to something like that. It's not any kind of deep, impactful part of the story. It just kind of helps set the ball rolling. Now, of course, our heroes do, in fact, manage to stop the robbery because it's the Avengers compared to a couple of mobsters with fur coats. It doesn't really take a whole lot of effort. The next day, we see a meeting of the heads of the Magia. And they're concerned about the events of the previous night because the Magia doesn't tolerate failure. And they're all concerned about what will happen when Count Nefaria finds out, Count Nefaria being the big overboss. The Count is also the richest nobleman in Europe and is generally considered to be very highly respectable and nobody suspects him of being a mob boss. Well, fortunately, we don't have to wait very long because only a couple panels later, Count Nefaria demands that the heads of the Magia contact him using some form of really cool 3D image transmission. So, of course, the Count has already found out about last night's failures and immediately begins to dress down this crime syndicate head. And he threatens him with erasure of his image as punishment. I'll be honest, I don't understand the threat here how is erasure of his image a punishment 
Like, I get the fact that the organization doesn't tolerate failure and that he's being banished from the the syndicate. But again, what on earth does erasing his image have anything to do with anything? It didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And it's unfortunate because otherwise I think this is a pretty good scene in terms of building up the fact that this guy's dreading some punishment and making the reader understand the price of failure. But then the price of failure doesn't make sense for the amount of dread that the character is feeling. I, I don't know. Once he has dealt with the man who failed him, the Count takes a minute to look out from the parapet of his castle and gives us a quick idea of what his plan's going to be. You know, the Avengers broke up this robbery, and so he decides he needs to deal with the Avengers. And his plan is going to start with moving his castle stone by stone to America. Once all of this has been completed, the next step of his plan is to invite the Avengers over, which is exactly where we find our heroes. And the team is standing around taking a look at the newspaper, which is talking about this big charity event that Count Nefaria is going to hold in his castle, and basically inviting the public. On top of inviting the public, he also very specifically invites the Avengers, who, because it's for a charity event, are more than willing to join in. And so... We quickly cut to the Avengers arriving at Count Nefaria's and being invited in. Because the event isn't scheduled to start for a couple more hours, the Avengers are each shown to a room where they can relax a little bit, maybe freshen up, you know, be prepared to meet the public and be involved in this charity event. But of course, unbeknownst to the Avengers, as they enter these rooms, there's these odd light fixtures both because of the light they're giving off, but also because they don't really fit with the decor and the style of the castle, which most of the Avengers seem to comment on. What they don't realize is that not only are these lights odd, they're actually making the Avengers feel like time has slowed down, that they are effectively frozen in time. Now, the reality is that they're not, but these lights are giving the Avengers the feeling that that's what's happening. So for them, almost no time is going to pass, at least in their minds. In reality, time is going to pass as normal. So while the Avengers are more or less frozen, Count Nefaria takes this time to create 3D image duplicates of all of the Avengers, and he sends them to the Pentagon. And when they reach the Pentagon, the Avengers demand that they be put in power and that within one hour they're going to cancel all existing laws and they will create the laws themselves. Obviously, this doesn't go very well because we live in a democratic country, so the Avengers trying to take over by force is not going to be accepted very well. So within minutes, the decision is made that no, we're not going to give our country over to the Avengers and that we are going to fight them. So very quickly, the U.S. Army begins to generate plans and mobilize in order to take out the Avengers. And once again, the mighty Marvel press corps is at it because the Avengers walk out of the room it says, minutes later at an emergency news conference. And then the next panel is stacks and stacks of newspapers that say, Avengers declare war on U.S. I don't know how these people do it, but really the unsung, unrecognized heroes of the Marvel Universe is, is the press corps. This whole sequence is kind of interesting because, at least momentarily, it plays on the idea of what happens if superheroes decide that for the betterment of mankind, or for whatever reason, they're going to take over. It's kind of the, the superhero fascist idea. They're going to rule by dictatorship or imperial fiat. And while this issue doesn't stick with that idea for very long, it's always an interesting idea, and it's something that will get explored more and more as comics go on. You know, again, we're, we're still fairly early into the Silver Age in the 1960s here. You know, this is something that's going to get touched on in pretty much every decade since. There have been some very, very interesting storylines and, and entire books that are based on this idea. 
Watchmen is the one that always comes to mind in Ozymandias thinking he knows how to do better than everyone else does. Now, like I mentioned earlier, time is actually moving forward at a normal rate for everyone else. It's just the Avengers who feel like time is moving slowly. Though again, time is actually moving at the same speed for them as well. But because they've been absent for quite a while and the aforementioned crowds have never shown up, Rick Jones and the Teen Brigade become kind of concerned that something's up. Right? This is supposed to be some kind of big public charity event. Only the Avengers and the Teen Brigade are the only ones who showed up. And now the Avengers are nowhere to be found. So something doesn't feel right to Rick. And he and the Team Brigade go and investigate, only to be taken captive by Count Nefaria. Or, more specifically, his Magia henchman. Now, there is one panel in here that throws me off a little bit. We see the Magia henchman kind of sneaking up on the Teen Brigade. But the thought bubble says, my Magia agents will know how to handle this matter. And it's a thought bubble that should be had by Count Nefaria, but it's just a pair of hands. And it, it doesn't match the Count. The Count's wearing gloves, the hands aren't. The suit matches the henchman. It's not a big problem. It just throws me off a little bit. And I had to go back and reread it and say, did I miss something or not? And anything like that that pulls you out of the story for a second is unfortunate at a minimum. Of course, now that the Count has framed the Avengers for attempting to take over the United States, he can go ahead and let the real Avengers free. His goal is to get rid of the Avengers. And so hopefully the army is going to take care of that for him real quickly. In fact, to help matters along, the Count has actually already contacted the army and given them an anonymous tip as to where the Avengers are located, so that when he escorts them out of his castle, saying that, oh, I'm sorry, the charity event has been pushed off a day, they are almost immediately met by a hail of automatic weapons fire, followed very shortly by tanks and jets. Yeah, at this point, the U.S. Army is not screwing around. Now, the Avengers, on the other hand... They don't understand what's going on, but because they're heroes and because this is the U.S. Army and in theory these are the good guys, the Avengers really pull their punches. They disable rather than just completely destroy. They don't kill. Really, everything they're doing is defensive-based. And at the point at which the Avengers are overwhelmed, they actually just retreat. They don't increase the amount of force they're using. They just back away. Even the American soldiers noticed this. At one point, Thor uses his hammer to destroy a jet. And as the pilot's ejecting, he says, Thor's hammer's enchanted. It never misses. He could have shattered my escape mechanism, but didn't. Why? So there, even the soldiers are understanding that something's not quite right here. And they just don't know what it is. But again, it's not enough for them to immediately stop fighting. So like I mentioned, at this point, the Avengers have retreated, and they actually go to a secret hidden base that they have, and certainly nothing we've ever seen before, if, if you've been keeping up with issues. And I'm kind of curious as to where this is. There's actually like a little like ant-sized entrance for Ant-Man and Wasp, but the other Avengers are already there, and you know, the whole facility is normal-sized. So I'm kind of wondering like where they've been hiding this base. Is it just maybe the basement of Avengers Mansion? I don't know. But it seems like, certainly it's a little out of nowhere, but it seems like it's a little out of nowhere. Now, while the Avengers are down in this secret base, they all start talking about their experiences at Nefaria's castle, and they realize that they all had a very similar experience with it, the feeling that time was slowing down. And maybe that's a little understandable for one or two people. Kind of dozed off, you know. The light was just right, and I sat down, and then I lost track of time. Like, I had a couch in college that was like that. You sit down and you wake up four hours later. That's not necessarily an uncommon thing amongst one or two people. But when all of the Avengers feel it, they start to realize something's up. 
and obviously since the common experience happened at Count Nefaria's castle, they're going to go back and they're going to check that out because it seems like it's connected to what's going on. Meanwhile, elsewhere in New York, the Fantastic Four are getting ready to mobilize themselves against the Avengers, only to be stopped by a representative of the Pentagon who effectively puts the heroes under house arrest. This is the first time we really see the idea of the government kind of stepping in and not allowing heroes to police one another, but saying that, no, no, this is something we really need to take care of. We kind of turn a blind eye to, like, the general vigilanteism, but this is a little bit too far, and it's something that we need to take care of. Again, it is a theme we will see over and over and over again in comics though not nearly as much in the silver age and certainly much much heavier in the modern age you know when we get to books like civil war and things like that that really kind of comes into play so i rip on the teen brigade a lot mostly because i just kind of find them irritating i do however appreciate when they are at least written well and written to character and one of the fundamental things about the teen brigade is that they are a bunch of ham radio enthusiasts and while they are imprisoned in Nefaria's dungeon, they pull pieces together and form a very small radio, and they attempt to contact Iron Man. Now, unfortunately for Rick and the Teen Brigade, Iron Man's receiver is damaged, and he can't receive their transmissions, but I mean, it's a very fitting character thing for these kids to do. Now, just because Iron Man isn't receiving doesn't mean someone else isn't, and this particular someone is none other than Count Nefaria. When he realizes that the Team Brigade is using their ham radio skills to try and contact the Avengers and let them know what's going on, the Count moves them from the holding cell that they're currently in to kind of a weird-looking one where it's almost like iron bars with these yellow blobs, kind of balls attached to them. And the Count warns the Team Brigade that one touch of those little balls will put them in a perpetual state of suspended animation. And Rick's like, all right, cool, but, you know, you told us, so we just won't touch them. And the Count's like, ah, not so fast. And immediately the walls of this holding cell begin to contract to a point where all the Team Brigade members are all smushed together. And even the slightest motion on their part will cause them to touch these balls, at which point it's all over for all of them. Because if one of them touches it, they're going to lose muscle control and they're not going to be able to hold themselves up. And they're going to knock into the other ones and the other ones are going to hit them. So at this point, the Team Brigade has to hold absolutely positively still or they are totally screwed. It's also an interesting moment, and the Count has talked about this before. It's his rule to never directly injure anyone. So he just sets people up in a situation where if they fail, they injure themselves, they cause themselves harm. Like the Team Brigade, right? He doesn't actually make them contact the balls, but if they move, they're going to contact it, and then it's their fault. And yeah, I think we can all follow the logic behind that argument. I think we can all also recognize that it is absolute nonsense. If you push something all the way to that ledge and just wait for someone to topple off of it, yes, you did not directly cause it. But certainly your actions have exacerbated the situation significantly. It's a very villain way of looking at the world. And it's a way for them to justify, no, I'm not a villain. I don't harm people. I don't steal things. I don't do this. I don't do that. I just make the conditions so that it can happen, and then other people do it. I'm not really the bad guy. There's a lot of self-justification there. Now, while the Count is explaining to the Team Brigade how he's not really at fault, the Avengers show back up at the Count's castle. But he seems to be, you know, fairly prepared for them, in that he's got some kind of gaseous form of this suspended animation serum. 
when Thor gets too close, he is doused in it, and Giant Man attempting to come to his rescue is also then contaminated, as is Wasp when she touches Giant Man. So immediately, three Avengers are now in this state of suspended animation. Iron Man, because he can fly, doesn't have to touch the ground, and he goes, I got this, I'm just gonna come up here and land on the castle. And as soon as he grabs onto the castle, turns out the castle's been treated too, and now Iron Man is stuck. Although, I love the fact that Iron Man is stuck sticking out at a 90 degree angle from the side of the building. When it said suspended animation, they weren't kidding. You are frozen right where you are. So at this point, the only Avenger that's left is Captain America. And Cap being Cap is not going to give up, especially on Rick Jones because it's... Rick and Cap has that relationship with him and and feels responsible for him. So Cap attaches a rope to the end of his shield, throws his shield up around one of the turrets on the castle, and uses that to swing in through an open window. Perfect, perfect shot. Of course, almost immediately he is met by several Magia henchmen, whom pose almost no threat. Cap dispatches three of them with one solid smash of his shield to all three of them at once. It is an amazing example of physical prowess, and it's got a solid sound effect to go along with it. There's a nice, big, almost third of a page-sized wham running up the side of one of the panels. And the way these three guys go flying, I mean, you can really feel the level of impact that sound effect is bringing with it. These guys are not getting up from this. Thankfully, Cap is just in time to save the Teen Brigade. They've been standing here for a while, and one of them is about to touch one of these balls. But thankfully, Cap is able to free them. And, you know, I've talked about this before, that Silver Age villains are self-sabotaging. They've got these plans that are going to work, but then they do something that undermines the entire plan they have set out. And this is a great example Count Nefaria leaves out a giant bottle of the antidote for this suspended animation serum that he has. So Cap and Rick and the other Team Brigade members can take this bottle and free the rest of the Avengers. I mean, this is about as deus ex machina as you can get. Here's the item that you need to completely undermine the the villain's plot, and he happened to leave it right in front of you so you could find it easier. Given that these are Silver Age comics, this is the kind of thing I expect. At the same time, it is a little frustrating. So while the Team Brigade goes to free the Avengers, Cap decides to go confront Count Nefaria himself. At first it works, like he's making some progress towards the Count, but then he's captured. And it's one of those times that I'm a little disappointed at the sequential art here, because a lot of things happen in a very short amount of time. Again, it all makes sense. There's nothing in this issue that is out of place or I feel like it is, oh God, you know, what the hell's going on? I don't understand. It just, a lot of things are happening at this point off panel because we're running out of space. We're running out of pages. I don't think this is as bad as previous books have been. And I think part of that's because although that first page isn't a necessary part of the book, it is at least part of the book. It's not an entirely wasted page. So I think they're making do with the pages they've got. But again, we're getting towards the end and we have to speed up the pacing. So needless to say, the Avengers are unfrozen from their suspended animation and Count Nefaria is captured by the Avengers who then turn him over to the military because again, the military are the ones who have been going coming after the Avengers. And in general, everything is made right. Right, the Avengers have their name cleared. Count Nefaria is going to be punished by the Magia, which in and of itself is a little bit weird because the impression that they give at the beginning of the book 
is that the Magia work for Nefaria, not Nefaria works for the Magia. So if Nefaria is at the top of the food chain, why is he the one getting punished? I get they punish failure, but if there's nobody above him to punish him, you know what I'm saying? It's a little bit of an inconsistency in the story there that, that bugs me. But again, Nefaria's turned over and everything looks like it's going to go well until Rick walks in. And Rick comes in holding Wasp in his arms. And according to Rick, during the fighting, a stray bullet hit Wasp. And that's where we're going to leave the book. And, I mean, this is a good cliffhanger. Wasp is obviously gravely injured, and we don't know what's going to happen to her. Again, we are modern comic book readers. We know that Wasp comes back. But readers at the time have no idea. And if you haven't read these stories before, you don't know how this is going to happen. Villains seemingly die and come back all the time. What's to say a hero's not going to do that? Or just die? So I like that this book leaves us with a, a cliffhanger. I'm disappointed that it all happens off panel. I think the ending is great with Rick walking in holding Wasp, but I think some of this could have been shown on panel, leading up to like a shot fired and then cutting away and then cutting back. I think you can build a little more suspense with that. Especially when you see this single shot fire, you know, something that when a book focuses in on an action or an item like that, it makes you place importance on that event. And then to cut away, you don't immediately get the consequences of it. And then you come back and you go, oh, oh no. I find it to be far more impactful personally. All right, so that's our issue. Overall, like I said, th this is a quality cliffhanger of an ending. And it's really the first good one we've had in Avengers. Obviously, this is going to start a, a long tradition of great cliffhangers in Avengers, but there's always got to be the first one, and here it is. Now, one of the things that bugs me about this story, and in general bugs me about superhero comics, is I'm always kind of amazed and horrified by the nearly instantaneous change of public opinions that happen. As soon as superheroes with you know, years and years and decades of goodwill and experience and positive things do one little thing wrong, the entire universe turns against them. Now, obviously, in this case, this is issue 13. So we're talking um, a year and a half, two years, ballpark for the Avengers. But all the goodwill they've built up in that time is immediately forgotten, and they are traitors and horrible villains. And then as soon as their name gets cleared, back to normal, no problems, everything's fine, like it never happened. And, I mean, yes, the public is fickle. I think we all understand that by just looking at things like social media and watching people's opinions waffle back and forth over really the most minuscule stuff. But it, it's still a little frustrating to read this where it's like, oh, they're so horrible. Oh, they're great. Oh, they're so horrible. Oh, they're great. It's just back and forth constantly, and you kind of go, how do these people function? If you can't make a basic decision here, or you're willing to flip-flop on something so easily, and then flip right back. As for art in this book, overall, the coloring in this book just feels really nice. I don't have a specific reason for it. I just, by the time I finished this issue, I went, I really like the colors in this book. They're really enjoyable. Like, I went back and I thumbed through, and like, yeah, I just, no, I, I really like how they colored it. I mean, sometimes there isn't a good concrete reason why you feel that way about something. Also, in general, Don Heck's layouts have just significantly improved. I don't know if this is a thing or not. I feel almost like, at least in this issue, you know, maybe there's some, some help on the layouts going on behind the scenes. Maybe Jack Kirby's helping out and just not getting credit on the book. You know, I have no idea, but I appreciate the fact that as Don Heck has gone along this book, there has been a significant increase in the quality of his layouts which is great because it meshes very nicely with the high quality of his art. So his ability to tell a story with just the art is 
slowly but steadily increasing. Remember, you can find us at AvengersAssembly.com. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can find this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and YouTube. If you'd like to be a part of the conversation, send your questions and comments to Andrew at AvengersAssembly.com. Next week, we're going to be taking a look at Avengers number 14, Even Avengers Can Die. All right, hey. All right, good job, guys. Let's just not come in tomorrow. Let's just take a day. Have you ever tried shawarma? There's a shawarma joint about two blocks from here. I don't know what it is, but I want to try it.